You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Hello, Manufactured listeners, and welcome back. This episode is the first of a mini-series about decarbonization that Manufactured will be releasing this autumn. And this first episode is a conversation with Sid Amalian, Head of Sustainable Business at MAS Holdings, a Sri Lankan manufacturing company with over 100,000 employees and operating across 50 facilities in 15 countries. They mainly produce more technical clothing and apparel, specifically in the active wear, swimwear, and lingerie segments of the market, and their fastest growing business is in femtech. Sid is a fervent technology enthusiast, but in this episode, he was kind enough to chat to me and to manufactured co-founder, who's the co-host of this episode, Jesse Lee, about MAS's decarbonization work. We talk about the company's decision to sign up for science-based targets. Why did they do this? How did they set their target? And what are the challenges they're facing in terms of achieving those targets? And What are Sid's thoughts about the kind of support that manufacturers need from brands in order to help achieve their science-based targets? But we can't talk about decarbonization without also talking about energy. And we can't talk about energy without also talking about place, about geography. Not all places get their energy from the same sources, and what's technically and economically feasible also varies. So we talk about how decarbonization really requires committing to a place, investing in a community, which of course begs the question, will my manufacturing business even be around in 15 years in this place, in this format? Which leads us to one of our all-time favorite topics, the importance of partnership, this time for achieving decarbonization targets. A quick note about what science-based targets are, and this is from the science-based targets website, sciencebasedtargets.org, and I quote, science-based targets provide a clearly defined pathway for companies and financial institutions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, helping prevent the worst impacts of climate change and future-proof business growth. Targets are considered science-based if they are in line with what the latest climate science deems necessary to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, limiting global warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels, end quote. In other words, it's a way for companies to set greenhouse gas reduction targets, and you can see on the science-based target website which companies have done this, and the science-based targets initiative supports companies with this process to make sure that those targets really are science-based. This is a pretty crude explanation, but I'll put a link in the show notes for more information. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following along on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to Off the Beaten Path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Sid, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're recording this in July 2022. So I, I want to start this conversation by just acknowledging and touching on a little bit what's happening in Sri Lanka at the moment, the economic crisis, and um, maybe have you talk a little bit about 
how you're experiencing that and the impact that it's having. I know it's it's the um, foreign exchange reserves are at record lows and that that's making it really hard to pay for essential imports, including fuel, which is um, in many ways at the heart of today's conversation about decarbonization. Um, so it's, it's definitely a really difficult time, um, just mentally, mindset-wise. I think people are sort of exhausted. And then, you know, from a, just to get things done, you know, from, you know, there are five kilometer long lines for fuel and they will fill a quarter tank. So it takes three to four days to fill a quarter tank and you're just stuck in, stuck in, uh, you know, a fuel queue for that long. Days. People are out here for days just hanging around. So just like from an economy perspective, you can just see the waste everywhere and it's, it's, it's so disheartening. But it is tied into to decarbonization as well because, we're, I mean, we're all looking around and saying, man, we are addicted to oil as a society, as a, as a human race, um, not just in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka just happens to not be able to afford it. And so we can really feel it right now. Um, but it is an addiction. I mean, you look outside and, and people are just, you know, in five kilometer long queues waiting for just a little bit of, um, of oil, a little bit of petrol, a little bit of diesel. Um, so I think this is a very, very pertinent topic uh, and something that we are experiencing firsthand. What happens in the worst case scenario is happening right now from a climate change perspective, right? Um, and so we're seeing that if you don't really prepare for this, use Sri Lanka as an example, this is what's happening and what can possibly happen. Um, so I think it's very relevant for our conversation today also. Yeah. Um, and we want to get into all of that, but I wanted to maybe kick things off by just having you share a little bit about how you ended up in this industry doing what you're doing, because I, it's always nice to have a little bit of context for the people that we're talking to. Yeah, for sure. Um, so um, about six years ago, I, I decided to, uh, to join MAS. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really not much of a tree hugger or, a, or a, I wouldn't say I'm, uh, you know, a sustainability expert as such. Uh, but, uh, you know, I really joined uh, MAS because I really loved uh, what they were doing in terms of uh, integrating technology into clothing and some of just overall the tech that they were using was what I thought was um, really, really for, you know, futuristic. And that's why I joined. Uh, and I spent, you know, a couple of years in our wearable technology team, our innovation teams. And then uh, in 2020, I was asked to take on um, sustainable business and, and bring together what was previously, you know, environment sustainability, which is separate to uh, social sustainability and uh, women's empowerment, which is again separate from each one of our design teams working on product. Uh, in, and, and so uh, we wanted to really understand how we can bring all of that together under under one banner and 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 really um, set forth a clear sustainable business strategy um, and one that's you know revolves around change and and change is that key word at MAS. So one thing I've, that's remained constant. Uh, in the last six years is change. Um, and it's also part of the, the tagline of, of MS as well, change is courage. Um, and I think it's, it's very, very apt for us uh, today and, and also apt for what we're trying to achieve uh, and what we feel we can achieve 
uh, from a sustainable business perspective. And maybe you could also just give a little bit of context for MAS. Sure. What yeah. are you making? Um, where are you making it? Yes. Uh, yes, I should have started with that. So MAS is um, a large apparel and technology company. Um, so we have a little over 50 facilities in over 15 countries. Uh, we mainly produce uh, more technical clothing um, and technical apparel, specifically in the uh, activewear, swimwear, and then lingerie uh, segments of the market. Uh, we also have um, uh, uh, our fastest growing business is in, in, is in Femtech. Um, and so that's something that they're super excited about as well as uh, probably the next um, the next sort of big division that, that MS will start to put together going forward. Um, so yeah, and we are primarily based out of uh, Sri Lanka, but we also have locations in uh, 14 other countries as well, from design houses to innovation, uh, to manufacturing and, uh, uh, and logistics and warehousing as well. I think you're the first manufacturer I've talked to that's also described yourself as a technology company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, it's, it's the innovation in me that, uh, innovation background in me that, that's sort of coming out there. Uh, I, I mean, that's something I firmly believe in. And, um, you know, especially when you go to any MAS facility, even the cut and sew facilities, uh, there's an incredible amount of technology that supports it from digital tech, uh, mainly that you don't really see, uh, and also to, you know, uh, more hardcore technology and machinery, uh, and automated machinery as well that we're using in some of our facilities. So, uh, we are, we do try to, to push the boundaries and, and try to do things, uh, differently, uh, wherever we can. The, the combination is very interesting that a technology company, technical company and a manufacturer in the garment industry. I think that's, yeah, that's a very good uh, description. Can, can renew the images people usually have about garment industry. Usually people think it's a heavily labored and old. Which old it is, is though, still. It, it can be yeah. both, right? can be yes. both. And old, yes. old sometimes it means outdated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be both. Um, so let's talk about science-based targets. Why did MIS sign up for science-based targets in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, there's, there's a bit of history and context. So we started, um, you know, before I even joined the company, uh, there was a movement purely based on passion uh, to restore biodiversity to 100 times our footprint and um, to make our facilities as energy efficient as possible starting from 2011. And so that was sort of initially what, what, what got us going. And it was purely based, it was not so much our customers were asking for it, but it was just something that we, uh, the, the leadership at the time was really passionate about uh, and, and felt that they wanted to do. Um, so, the third thing that happened was um, um, was solar rooftops as well. So there was a, a program that was implemented in, in Sri Lanka that made it economically feasible um, to implement, you know, solar uh, rooftop to implement solar panels on your rooftops, um, and we, you know, the payback was about five years. So it it made sense for us to invest in that. It made sense, uh, you know, economic sense to invest in energy efficiency, lighting, and you know, heat and cooling systems and, and all of that as well. Um, and 
it made sense to uh, restore biodiversity as well because that was something that was what people were passionate about. Um, and so that had been happening since 2011. And then in, in uh, 2020, when I took on this role, um, we wanted to understand what is that next step for us. And, and, how, and one of the things that we struggled with was really measuring the impact that we were having uh, in terms of reducing or, or being more energy efficient. Um, we hadn't really measured or monitored and there wasn't a tool that we could use. So, uh, you know, when we came across science-based targets, we are like, hey, this is going to give us um, a way to clearly calculate, um, you know, the impact that we're having, both negative and also what can we do to reduce our negative impact. And so for us, it was a no-brainer for us to really see how we can uh, sign up for science-based targets. Um, uh, which was a, a long process for us, but I think we had most of the systems and processes in place. Uh, the issue that we had, of course, was that we had already taken significant steps uh, in the journey, but we could only count uh, from 2019 onwards, right? Okay, and briefly an explanation here. The rule for science-based targets is you're encouraged to use as your baseline the most recent year, so like last year. Um, so in, in 2022 to use, if you're setting a target in 2022, to use 2021 as your baseline. Um, and officially, and this is from their website, science-based target will accept the most recent year inventories for up to two years before target submission. So if you were making targets in 2021, that would be 2019. And I think this year there's actually an exception for 2022 that because of COVID, you can still use 2019 as your baseline. But effectively, what that means is that uh, for companies that have already done a lot to reduce their carbon impact before actually setting a target, it's a lot. Let's say there are two companies that are setting, you know, the same target for reducing their carbon emissions, it's going to be a lot easier for the company that hasn't done anything to reduce their carbon carbon emissions yet to hit their target than it is for the company that's already spent a lot of time working on this because for them the low-hanging fruit has been cleared all the all, all the easy stuff has been done and the the remaining things are are a lot more complicated so we had already uh, plucked all the low-hanging fruit in terms of energy efficiency and so we're starting from uh you know, a place where we've already made significant progress and then we're setting, we set ourselves a pretty steep target um, to, to, to reduce by 25.2% our scope one and scope two, uh, you know, absolute carbon reductions. And we picked um, that target because when we looked at, you know, what some of our brands were setting for themselves, uh, they were setting similar targets, 20, 20%, 25%, 30% of, of scope one and two. Um, I guess naively we thought um, that, you know, we could also meet the same targets. What we didn't realize was many of, of, the, of, the, of the folks who had set such targets had made zero progress until then. Many of those uh, companies that had set such targets uh, were brand houses. And so they didn't actually have, uh, you know, a whole lot to, to cut out. And, and, and they were located in places where renewable energy was, um, uh, easily available and, and didn't require capex. Um, it didn't require massive increases in, in, in opex either. Um, so we were a little naive when we when we set the target in 2020. Um, but in I think that's just sort of also the way that MAS goes about things. We'll, uh, we set us we see a vision for what we want. We set 
ridiculously you know ambitious targets and then you know two years down the line everyone's like oh my god how are we going to get there we're never going to get there there's that valley of depression or, or valley of uh yeah i guess depression um but and we're sort of in that right now um but we do see a light at the end of the tunnel that are ways for us to um for us to meet those targets I don't think uh, Mats is naive. I just found it interesting to say many brands joined this um, uh, SBTI actually had a lot, had a big part of the work cut off because it's just their brand houses. It's not production. And if we talk about production, I think we just can't ignore the original differences. Factories in Cambodia, which is where Jesse is based, the national grid in of Cambodia still relies a lot on core and and other issues. Yeah, and Hydra. And I think the beginning of last year, Cambodian government even released a news to say they are going to increase increase the core and uh, plantation, the percentage of core plantation in their national grid. So in that case, the factories in Cambodia will, will be in a very uh, in a very the situation or the condition are just not that positive for them. I actually went to check the uh, over 3,000 companies joined uh, this campaign as BTI. And uh, I found that there are very limited manufacturers joined this campaign. Very, very limited. And I wonder why. So I don't know um, why other manufacturers don't do it. It's probably because, you know... Um, they're able to see that it's not really going to be possible or it may be very difficult to achieve. And so they say, you know, why should we, why should we bother setting that? Sid, um, one, one of the things that you said, which Jesse maybe also responds in part to your question, which I think is interesting and worth highlighting is that like, you know, you said you talked, you started the story in 2011, you know, and, um, you know, that you described this choice to join SV science-based targets as something that really was internally driven. Whereas like a lot of the conversations I have with manufacturers now, it's like their brands, the brands that they produce for have made these really public commitments through science-based targets. And they're like, wait a minute, how are we going to achieve these? Oh, actually it's our supply chains. We're going to have to do the heavy lifting. Oh, okay. Hey, supply chain, please uh, take on this target. And there's a lot of like resentment, I think, because it's like one of the things I hear over and over is like there just doesn't from manufacturers that I've talked to is that there doesn't seem to be recognition or they don't feel recognition from the brands that they're producing for about like what's actually being asked of them. You know, because it's like, it's not just reimagining your business, it's reimagining the whole context in which you operate, right? Which Jesse, I think is also like a little bit what what you were getting at. And that this is like, this is like, this is not tweaks around the edges, you know, and, and Sid, maybe that's what you are getting at too. When you say like, you've, you've already done all of the easy stuff, right? Like now what is left for you to do? Well, I don't know, only to reimagine your whole business, you know, like. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, exactly. And I think that's something that um, we, and that's why we're in this stage right now where uh, we are, to be honest, struggling a little bit. But I, I should say, uh, 
one or two of our big customers did support us uh, through mm-hmm. this as well uh, and did help us, um, you know, even in terms of uh, applying um, uh, f- for science-based targets and all of that as well. Uh, they did share their knowledge with us and they did help us. Um, are they going to help us now achieve it? Um, you know, uh, I, I think the onus is now on us. Uh, but I should say that, you know, we are lucky that we have, you know, some very, you know, long-term partnerships with some of our key brands uh, that span several decades um, where, you know, uh, the relationships are uh, very genuine and authentic uh, at, at multiple levels in both of our organizations. Uh, and so as a result, uh, you know, we, we do help each other a lot, right? So, I mean... Mm initial parts of the pandemic, we may have helped our brand partners. Um, and, and then, you know, now, for example, with everything that's happening in, in Sri Lanka, uh, certainly our brand partners are helping us out. Uh, specifically with SBTI, uh, there were one or two brand partners that certainly did help. Uh, but it, there wasn't too many, right? And I think uh, we actually found that after we signed up, we started seeing a lot more of our other brand partners signing up, um, you know, after us. Um, doesn't really matter who gets to the finish line first, so long as everyone gets there um, at mm. some point, right? I want to ask you what when you say the brands we're producing for helped us. What what do you mean by that? Like, could you give some examples? And maybe for context, the reason I asked that question is because um, I've been having a lot of conversations lately where it's like, okay, so manufacturers are maybe like having a hard time with these science-based targets, they feel like a lack of recognition of what is being asked for and a lack of therefore also support for that. But then like, if you sort of try to flip that, like what, what, what does a manufacturer need from a brand? You know, if you're sitting, cause a lot of the listeners to this podcast are people who are working in brands and it's like, you know, what, what's, what's the message? Like, what's the ask? What's the request, you know? Yeah, great, great question. And I think, um, I think let, let, let's sort of split that into, into two areas. One is sort of pre, you know, how do you sign, how do you convince, how do you actually look at signing up? And then once you sign up, how do you actually, what support do you need to actually execute? Um, uh, to be honest, you know, signing up is, is really just, a, is fairly straightforward. And I think brands, you know, can, um, can help by, Reviewing, you know, your your application uh, and 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 hand holding a little bit of, you know, ha- holding hands in terms of guiding manufacturers through that process, uh, especially if they have uh, folks that have already done it before and understand because it is a complex application, right? It's not it's not completely straightforward. Uh, there is a little bit of education, um, and and so I think there's a little bit of hand holding in, in that space. But I think really what, what manufacturers need is, is help in execution, right? Because if we know that we're going to be supported in execution, then we'll figure out, we'll definitely sign up, right? There's, there's, not, there's no barrier. Um, so I think it, it comes down to, um, you know, financing, especially, you know, for any type of capital intensive projects. Um, how do we, and a lot of manufacturers are based in locations or in countries uh, that have, a low country rating, uh, meaning that the banks, um, it, you know, consider it, consider country risk in any in, in lending uh, funds, right? To, to most manufacturers, and and you know, uh, MAS is in the same situation 
because they're primarily based out of Sri Lanka. Um, and so most banks see, you know, everything else that's happening in the country and then, and then, you know, I'm not going to give you the preferential rates that you need to invest in long-term, uh, you know, high cost, high capex solutions like solar, uh, like waste energy, you know, uh, plants or, um, you know, larger scale facilities like that. Um, and so I think brands on the other side, on, you know, have that. Uh, cloud with or brands have the cloud with with banks with international banks and so how can we gain access to uh, preferable finance rates and how can brands really help to do that whether it's by providing guarantees or in, in other ways uh, what can what can brands do differently so I think that's that's one in terms of things that are maybe higher on on capex uh, for things like uh, you know renewable energy credits uh, power purchase agreements etc. How can brands get involved uh, and negotiate, uh, you know, better rates uh, for renewable electricity uh, in the regions that that we operate? Uh, and certainly, we've had you know a great progress here. We're working with one brand um, based out of Indonesia, where they're really helping us uh, there in terms of um, negotiating the best rates possible. Uh, we're still paying a premium for renewable electricity, but at least we have access to it. Um, and we are now, um, and we and we we have cheaper access thanks to uh, you know one of the brands that we're working with. Um, so those are some things that are relatively you know easy easy that brands can certainly do um, just to help manufacturers along. Um, as sort of two quick points, I think the third thing is is policy change. So can brands uh, who are located in a particular region? work with governments in order to uh, impact energy policy. Um, and so this is a little bit more complex and obviously something that brands are uh, maybe not willing to do uh, so much just yet. Why do you think that is? And the reason I asked that is because I had a conversation recently with somebody who was working for a garment in a garment factory or for, for a manufacturer. And they were like, you know, I'm being asked to go into energy politics and I, I, that's not my wheelhouse. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I felt literally the exact same way uh, because, you know, our business and our organization does not deal with, uh, with governments very much. And we don't really deal with governments uh, uh, particularly well. I mean, we, we're very straightforward uh, uh, business at, at MAS and we work, you know, we're mainly an export company. Um, and so we, you know, working with government entities uh, comes with its own challenges. Uh, we are not used to, you know, the inefficiencies of a developing economies, government um, uh, uh, agencies, right? So I think uh, it is difficult for us to do, and it's not in our wheelhouse to do. But I think for at least some of the manufacturers and 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 you know, MAS at MAS, we're lucky because we're we're quite large. We're able to. We have some amount of influence, uh, but it, like like you said, this is not our forte. This is not our wheelhouse, um, and energy is not necessarily uh, where we want to be playing either. Um, so it's definitely interesting for us. Um, and but because of all of these things, we need, uh, or we could certainly use the clout that brands can bring to the table um, that we otherwise won't be able to. Uh, but that being said, you know. You know, just sort of digressing a little bit, you know, seeing what what are, what we are seeing here in Sri Lanka, 
uh, and, and you know where this heavily dependent on fossil fuels on coal and on diesel for for energy you know production um, and so what what we're seeing is you know the moment you run out of those resources or you can't afford those resources um, at that point we, we the entire country struggles and and then your business struggles as a result right and so we've been fortunate that our business has not been severely impacted yet but if you know the, the crisis that we're currently facing does continue we will certainly be uh, in more and more trouble as we go forward so i think it's clear to us that you know while we feel it's not in our wheelhouse it's not really important to us at the end of the day energy is what powers everything that we do um, and so we need to have a, a clarity in 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 understanding what is our own energy policy where are we going to get our energy from uh, this year and in five years time and in 10 years time um, so that's something new that at least, you know, MAS, because we're in Sri Lanka and we're facing, you know, where it's, it's very visual all around us, uh, the impact that oil, that a lack of oil, um, lack of access to oil can have. Uh, we are now understanding that it's much more important for us to get more involved. Um, but I don't think we've necessarily taken too many steps in that direction just yet. Anything else to add to the list of requests or asks from a brand? You know, another thing that brands can do is is to be braver in in their in their in their product choices, right? So, I mean, we for I mean at NS we have a technology that involves uh, you know digital printing as opposed mm-hmm. to going through the entire dyeing process, and we're able to do it in a manner where uh, we're able to meet almost all of the technical functionality. Um, but it is slightly subpine in terms of it, you know, in terms of the way that it looks, and a lot of brands are like, nope, that doesn't meet our, you know, high quality standards, and so well, we don't want this. Even though by moving to this, by moving to you know digital printing as opposed to dyeing and finishing, you're saving that entire process gets gets completely skipped, right? And so yeah. the energy that you save gets completely. Um, it, you know, and so some brands value that, uh, but a lot of brands will be like, nope, it doesn't meet our high quality standard. What will our customers think? Our customers will think we've, you know, we're putting out cheap product uh, that's, you know, subpar. Um, and I think so brands could also start to think about what they can do to educate their consumers so that they can sell product that's more sustainable and so that they can design product that's more sustainable, so that they can commercialize product that's more sustainable. Um, mm. And so I think that is then where big step changes start to happen because, you know, and I think like at the beginning of the call, we we're saying, look, we're sort of at this stage where we've done all, we've collected all the low hanging fruit. The, 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 the elephant in the room is if you change how the product is actually made, you're solving everything, right? Like in, in one go, you don't have to worry about energy policy. You don't have to worry about messing around with governments, just change the way the product is made and, and you're good to go. Um, and, and that's that the you know the the big part of what we need to do and 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 i think brands have a big part to play there because they own the product uh, and they own yeah and it's not like fashion is this like inherent thing you know it's like we as a collective as people decide what is fashionable (laughs) you know exactly right so i mean you know why don't we get uh you know all of the, the the fashion elite um, to understand mm. this better, and if they did understand it better, uh, you know, could they use their clout, right, um, it, it for good, right, and, mm. and actually create 
uh, you know, sustainable fashion yeah. that's made in, in, in a different way. One thing I found interesting is uh, the collective collective actions and the collective willingness. Like you said, it doesn't matter who reached the finishing line first. What matters what matters most is if we lose, actually everyone lose. If someone lose, everyone lose. So we need to make sure that everyone win at the same time. But that's the thing. I found those um, uh, lobbying work is just an extra layer of work put on the manufacturers. I'm not surprised why factories are not motivated. Think about it. They have their daily cash flow tension, their daily operational pressure. And on top of that, they needed to figure out how to reach the decarbonizing targets, probably not set up by themselves, right? And on top of that, they need to think, okay, I needed to deal with the governments. I needed to persuade our dear government to have a different energy policy. That is a whole new set of language and a new set of process. And it's just... And oh, by the way, please do it for free while we continue to like shit on you every time we have like a scandal in the news related to sustainability. I mean, paraphrasing, but like... So I just feel, yes, it's worse for brands to know that some work better to be done in a collective way, which means if they can pave the roads, that would be the best. Because it doesn't matter who who reached the finish line or who did which part of the work. Uh, when it comes to you know being more sustainable, we have to share, we have to collaborate, we have to partner more. And it's a little uneasy, uh, you know, because that's not what we're used to doing, right? I mean, brands are used to holding certain information for themselves. Manufacturers hold information. Uh, certainly, competitors uh, will will not share information with each other. Uh, but when it comes to sustainability, we have to right. We have to share best practices. We have to share, um, you know, what we're doing and and make sure that that everybody comes on board. Uh, you know, it's it, you know, like I said, the, the race analogy is not a good one for sustainability. It's it's more around you know the weakest link, right? So. Um, you know, think of a, a chain link fence, right? If there's one chain that's that's off, then uh, you know we're all gonna fail. So yeah, uh, you know, completely agree. I think that's definitely um, how we should be behaving. And I think most most brands and 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 most uh, you know of the larger manufacturers are working together. But I had somebody say to me recently, like, you know, Kim. My factory might have more in common with the rice processing facility down the road from an energy and decarbonization perspective, at least, than it does with a garment factory operating in an entirely different part of the world. And I'm curious your thoughts on like the sort of geography of this conversation and the role of maybe like, I don't know, hyper local action um in in enabling meaningful decarbonization change uh hyper local networks working within geographies i think super super important even as we look at um, the energy crisis in sri lanka we're thinking about how we can partner with other large industries here outside of apparel uh, and work together to to move towards more renewable energy uh, in, our, in our sort of grid emissions factor. Right? So right now, grid emissions factor looks pretty poor because we use a lot of coal and um, other types of fossil fuels. Uh, so I do agree that that's, you know, one way to look at it uh, is to really look at it from geography and, and 
how do you get the biggest enterprises, the biggest industries, who are usually going to be the biggest polluters to get together and, and, and work with the energy providers in that region um, uh, to actually make an impact. Um, I, I do agree that, and that is something that, that we're also, you know, considering and, and looking at. So one of the things that we did in, in our facilities in Indonesia, we actually have uh, cut and sew manufacturing, but we also have a lot of our supply chain, um, uh, you know, located in and around that, that region. And so we were able to, to negotiate renewable energy credits. Uh, a lot of people have issues with renewable energy credits, uh, and we do as well, but we do feel that it's a good first step in the right direction uh, before you move to, you know, being actually 100% absolute renewable energy uh, powered. But uh, we, we were able to negotiate across in that region for all of our different types of facilities, right? Um, and so, and and that's great. And and we're not able to do that in in Sri Lanka. We are we're working with a different energy provider, and so uh, we don't really have the same. We're not able to provide the same. Um, um, you know, renewable energy footprint is going to be different in different locations. And when I heard this, what a seed shared with me, I thought about uh, a news I read in 2020. So basically, uh, in 2020, six brands in six. International brands, including HM, Adidas, Nike, Puma, uh, they, they signed a letter to the Cambodian government to express their concern to say, uh, if Cambodia keep increase the core plantation percentage in their national grid, they might consider to move out the country to, to, to move the orders to other countries. So today I keep thinking about this news because I'm thinking, Kim, as, as you said, production is kind of abstract thing and footless thing for brands because it's a, it's a separated, you see, production and brands are two independent entities here. And it's so light for brands to move orders to another region or another country as long as it can help them to reach their decarbonization targets. But for a facility, for a supplier, for a producer, how can they move easily to another country, even that can help them to reach their decarbonizing target? Just to think about the cost they are going to uh, carry and the time and everything. So we're not talking about the same But also the cost. community. Yes, you exactly. Know? Exactly. How it's about like the, the social responsibility they have to their workers, to their employees in this region, in this country? So even even the situation in Sri Lanka has been so difficult for so many months. It's real to hear Sri Lankan producers or manufacturers move out of the country, and it's it's not uh, so. When we think about all this, I think I guess what I all I really want to say is when we talk about decarbonization and talking about all these possible targets and the means approaches to reach the targets. I would like brands and retailers to shoulder more responsibilities, not just uh, um, more financial, let's say, more share more financial risks and with their suppliers. It like, I think this word financial risk often feels really abstract too, but it's like really what that means is like, you know, investing in a place. 
right? Like yes. having some money tied up in a specific place that you cannot just, it's like I was talking to somebody who works with farmers recently and he was like, if you're a farmer, like you can't, you've been on that land for generations. You can't just like move your farm somewhere else. Like you are stuck in that community and you care about that community. I think like factories is, is maybe to a less extreme extent than say a farmer, but it's the same thing. You can't, like you have put, you have, you have invested in a specific place, geographic place. And you can't, it's not easy to just like pick up and move. And and actually like Sid, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking to or talking about is like, um, I've had like a couple of manufacturers express to me like, you know, like support with CapEx, like and access to finance, like all of this is great. But like, frankly, is my business even going to be around in 15 years? And, um, and like, and like, it, I don't know. And, and it's like, somehow, like, I, I'm, I don't want to use the word business model, because I think it's, again, another really abstract word, but it's like, somehow, like, it's the business model here that we need to talk about. And, and, and I guess what I trying to get at when I use the word business model is like, it's maybe a, a sort of echoing what Jesse is saying, which is that like, you ha- have to kind of like, you can't just be like jumping around and moving somewhere else. You have to commit, you have to be less promiscuous. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for sure. I think, you know, for, for a lot of, a lot of brands are, you know, transactionally in their approach, right. In, in supply chain. Uh, and so they will, um, like you said, you know, the moment, you know, those brands that are transactional are going to be, are going to, are going to, you know, very easily move from one location to the next, um, purely based on price. So we're seeing that already where you move towards a, a lower cost, uh, you know, country. Um, and so, you know, we've definitely experienced that. And, and the only reason why, you know, Sri Lanka is able to counteract that is because we have, we provide more innovation. We provide value beyond just you know manufacturing itself. But when it comes to sustainability, um, again, you know, Sri Lanka, for example, you know, it's it's impossible for us to move our facilities uh, because we're ingrained in in communities, the communities that rely on the income that's coming in, um, and in Sri Lanka's case. You know, because we're an export-oriented company, you know, MS is one of the companies uh, that is really bringing in foreign uh, foreign reserves into the country, uh, and which is desperately what what Sri Lanka as a nation really needs right now. So we're doing, um, you know, so, so getting up and leaving, uh, especially for sustainability reasons serves one side uh, you know in terms of environment but you're absolutely damaging you know your reputation in, in the community uh and you're damaging you know decades long you know worth of work for many of the manufacturers that have been around for a long time decades of work in in building that community up and in supporting that community and i think we at ms are really fortunate because we're working with you know brands that, that consider us as as partners and we consider them as partners um, and so at least in the short term, it does seem like we're, we're going to be, uh, th- that they're going to stick around and, and, and uh, with us. But another thing that you were talking about, um, Kim, was 
you know, are we even going to be around in, in 15 years? Why should we invest in being more sustainable if we're not going to be around or if the business is going to be in a different country? Um, that's certainly a, a huge concern for a lot of manufacturers, right? Um, is, you know, what is the longevity? Is this brand going to be with us next year or the year after even, you know, that, that sort of time frame? Um, so how can brands, uh, more brands form, you know, a partnership approach. I think MAS has really benefited and we've had, because we had, you know, strong partners, we can think long-term. We can invest in projects that are, you know, going to have five to seven year payback because we have some visibility on, on what the future is going to be with that particular brand. That's, that's not a, you know, we're, we're, we're privileged, right? Like we understand that. That's not how most, uh, you know, brand manufacturer partnerships uh, or relationships really work. Do you think that's because of your scale? Um, I think it, it's scale. It's uh, our ability to develop relationships uh, at the senior most level. That's purely that's based on, on trust um, and credibility to actually execute and deliver. Uh, and then that, and, and, and also relationships at, at multiple levels. So we take the effort uh, to, to build relationships at different levels of, of an organization. But at the end of the day, we're also able to, to consistently deliver at scale. Um, and I think that's definitely, you know, for sure, one of the reasons as well. And I think what makes us different is um, there, is a, there is a relationship of, of, of sort of mutual trust between uh, and mutual respect rather between our, you know, us and then our brand partners. So in our relationship, at least with, with the strongest brand partners, um, we're at a scale where we're also codependent, right? Like we need them as much as they need us. Uh, and so it makes sense um, for us to invest in each other. And it makes sense uh, for us to, you know, work together uh, to achieve our goals together, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you're in the opposite scenario where let's say you're a brand and you've got plenty of options and you're, you're dealing with a lot of smaller manufacturers, and you can sort of pick and choose based on price and your your strategy has has been you know okay from season to season whoever offers me the best price i'm going to move um then that's really not going to help the industry overall uh, and, and you're then just going to move to whoever can afford to do things cheaply and the reality is to manufacture clothing sustainably you can't pay the same price um as as just as as manufacturing and destroying plant, right? Like that, it fundamentally comes down to you. You have to be willing to um, to to accept a higher FOB if you want things to be you know run more sustainably. Can I ask? Like, I'm smiling a little bit because I feel like every episode we do somehow like we always it comes back like we always end up talking about relationships. We end up talking about partnership, which. I define in the like strictest sense of the word, which means shared profits and losses, which means, as you say, codependence. Um, and um, I'm curious, like, like, I don't know, I, I guess my understanding is that a lot of or some brands would choose not to invest in, let's say, a smaller group of suppliers to consolidate their supplier base because it's seen as too risky 
in the financial sense of the word, right? So what do you think it is about the brands that you work with that has sort of like innate, like that has led to this? I think it also just depends on where, you know, where they want to position themselves in the market. So if you want to position yourself as a cost leader, um, then you're really going to focus on, you know, particular, your definition of value is different, right? It's, it's focused on price. If you want to position yourself as, a, you know, a, a, a quality leader or, you know, upmarket or mid-level market, then your, your definition of value is a little bit broader that in, involves, you know, quality of your product. It involves, uh, you know, delivery of your product. It involves, um, you know, how your product is made as well, right? And so we try to work with brands uh, who who see themselves uh, as more than than purely you know competing on price. Um, and so we've we've specifically associated ourselves with, with those types of brands. And I think that's that sort of. But that's not to say that we don't work with with cost leaders. We do we do have certainly some of our brands in our portfolio that are cost leaders, and we try to offer them cost efficient models. Um, but I mean that's the other thing as well. Uh, you know, Kim and, and Jesse is uh, we've got to understand that different brands are in in different places in their sort of life cycle as well. Some are sort of at that tail end where you know. They had, you know, their heyday was in the past and they're now, you know, trying to figure out what, what's going on and why they're losing market share. And so their focus is not necessarily on supply chain and longevity. The focus is on survival. Other brands are sort of cost competitive. And so, you know, their entire mission is a little bit different. Um, some brands are in that growth stage where, you know, they've struck gold by creating a product or finding a niche market. Um, and they're growing so fast that, that they don't really value sustainability just yet. So brands are in, in, in different places. And I think it's up to us as manufacturers um, and as brand partners uh, to, to meet our brands where they are um, and try to service them to the best of our ability, right? So brands that really, really care about sustainability will offer the more sustainable facilities. And so I think what we're also trying to do going forward is understand how we can offer some flexibility uh, based on where and, and, and what our brands want to achieve as well. Um, but I think that the best partnerships uh, are where we are completely aligned in terms of uh, where MAS is as well as where the brand is. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 